A reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For, as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means, and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this, not merely as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and, by the will of God, to us, so that we might urge Titus that, as he had already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, while he, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that his poverty, by his poverty you might become rich. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had too much, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives a series of parables about God's kingdom. In two of these parables that Jesus speaks back to back, and I think that they both speak to the modern malaise clearer than many of the others. It's the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. They're both very short. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What's stunning about these parables is the simple clarity of both protagonists. They have a clarity that has prophetic urgency in modern life. Don't you feel pulled in too many directions? You've got responsibilities at home and with your family. You're striving for success in school or your career. You're trying to manage your investments in retirement. And you're trying to achieve the most elusive of all things, work-life balance, mindfulness, self-care. I heard a while back that with the advent of smartphones, we are distracting ourselves every three minutes. I read recently that the average American family logs 1,000 hours at work more per year than just a few decades ago. For all of our technological and ec economical advances in the West, our divorce, divorce rates have risen, suicide rates have risen, addictions to body and mind-numbing drugs have risen. 
Despite demanding and for the most part attaining for ourselves unlimited choices about who or what we want to become, by nearly all metrics of happiness, we have entered a phase of recidivism rather than progression. We are not happy. A while back, I watched uh, the, the movie All the Money in the World. It's not a very good movie. It's based on the true story of the kidnapping of the grandson of J. Paul Getty, the billionaire. There's this scene where Getty's security manager is telling him that they need to pay the ransom in order to get his grandson back safely. And Getty's response is, he can't afford to pay. This guy's a billionaire. He's never been so financially insecure, he tells his security manager. The security manager responds by saying, you just told me that the markets were way up. You have literally never been richer than you are in this moment. And there has never been anyone richer than you in this moment in all of history. How much do you need to feel secure? Getty's answer? More. By the way, this is not just some Hollywood writers uh, surmising. In a study done with the richest of the rich in the USA just a few years ago, almost all of them said they felt financially insecure. People with hundreds of millions of dollars felt financially insecure and anxious about their money. Almost all of them said they needed more. I would dare say that at some level, all of us in this room have had our imaginations hooked by some version of the American dream. That if we could just join the right gym, go on the right diet, live in the right neighborhood, and marry the right person, or have the right career with the right bank account, etc., then we're going to find... What is it that we're going to find? Immortality? Deification? One of the things that is so scandalous about the Christian story of the world, especially on display in Christian scripture, is that almost all of the suffering and destruction in the world can be traced back to this core idea that we have demanded the right to define the good life on our own terms rather than embrace the good life as God has defined it. Our version of the good life is self-referential. It's self-centered. It's self-generated. And it opens up a bottomless pit of need and greed it's just that most of us will never become rich enough to truly realize that it's bottomless, that all the money in the world won't satisfy us. Jim Carrey is not a very brilliant man, but he said in a moment of insightfulness, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. It's empty. What is so jarring about Jesus' parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price is that the protagonists each encounter something from outside themselves and their own value systems that so captures their imaginations that they are willing to give up everything else in order to be captured by it. This is something that the ancients called single-mindedness or single-heartedness, the heart being the, the place of the soul, the place of the will, and it's something I dare say we would be willing to spend thousands of hours and dollars in therapy in order to attain, to have this one thing that so captures our attention that it sheds light and brings meaning to every breath, every movement, every word, every moment of our lives. 
In St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church that we just had read for us, this is how he describes the Macedonian church to the Christians at Corinth. Did you notice that he started by saying, I want to tell you about the grace of God that is happening in Macedonia? And then he goes on to describe what the Macedonians are doing. And the way he describes them is that they were single-hearted, single-minded. They had an order of purpose that was as clear and strong as a person finding buried treasure in a field and exerting every energy, every resource to buy that field with the treasure in it. So what was this singleness of mind and heart that the Macedonian Christians had? Paul tells us they gave themselves first of all to the Lord. Paul is setting up a contrast here between the church in Macedonia and the church in Corinth. The Macedonian Christians were very poor. They barely had enough to survive themselves, and they definitely had no excess. The Corinthian church, on the other hand, was quite rich. Not each individual, but by and large, they were quite wealthy, and they had excess income to spare. St. Paul contrasts these two churches in their response to a particular need. The church in Jerusalem at the time was also very poor and had immense needs. And the Corinthian Christians were talking a pretty big game about helping them out financially, but so far it was all talk. They hadn't actually followed through. The Macedonians, on the other hand, with their meager resources, pulled together an offering for their brothers and sisters in the church in Jerusalem, and they had given it with immense joy. And the reason that Paul gives that the Macedonians had been so generous, even in the face of their own lack, was due to their singleness of heart and mind. They had given themselves, first of all, to the Lord. So what does that mean, to give yourself, first of all, to the Lord? At a certain level, I think what Paul is saying is that the Macedonians had had their imaginations, their desires, radically captured and reordered by a treasure hidden in a field. And this brings us back to the deep scandal of Christianity. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul uses the word charis no less than 10 times. He deploys the word in a variety of ways, and it's translated in a variety of ways, often as grace, but he's doing it all to get at one main point. In Jesus, God has displayed for us the nature of his love for the world as self-gift. God gives himself Through the word of God, all of creation was spoken into being in the power of the word, and in that power, all things are held together. Christ himself is wisdom and beauty and riches that cannot be measured, and to him belong all power and wisdom and wealth and honor and glory and praise. But why? Why are those things given to him? According to St. John's apocalyptic vision, which is a cosmic Eucharist liturgy, that's what that vision is, right? It's because this Christ who receives all of these accolades, all of these things, is worthy because he is the lamb who was slain. Christ submitted himself to the divine will, a plan which required his sacrifice to achieve our salvation. Do you see that the Macedonians patterned themselves on Christ? Christ gave himself first to his Father, and they have given themselves first to him. In giving himself first to his Father, Christ was willing to give up everything in submission to the divine will, which was to snatch back humanity from death and decay and bring them back into the divine life. So, of course, 
the Macedonians were willing to give up all of their financial resources, as meager as they were, in order to bring benefit to their brothers and sisters in Christ that they had never even met. Paul is telling us that this charis, this grace, this self-gift that is the primary marker of divinity that has brought us to life in Christ is something that we can participate in concretely through our generosity. As I have said to you before, there is no such thing as theoretical generosity, just as there is no such thing as theoretical Christianity. If you want to be a generous person, you have to practice generosity, just as if you want to be a Christian, you have to practice the ways of Christ. As we've been noticing, the parallels between modern American Christianity and ancient Corinthian Christianity are uncanny. Much like our Corinthian forebears, we are enamored with celebrity pastors and slick, glittery spirituality. It turns out our Corinthian problems may go even deeper than that. Much like the church in Corinth, by global standards, we have a lot of wealth in this church. Many of you have worked hard and employed wisdom and have been met with success or just plain luck, and none of that is bad. Having wealth is not bad. Christ gets misquoted too much here. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. I say this from time to time, but you should know. Generally speaking, I don't know who gives what here. I don't have a list of super donors. I don't recall ever coming to any of you individually asking for money to fund a specific project. Our Anglican canons, the, the laws of our church that sort of give guidance to how we exist as a parish, state that part of the work of the people, all of us, is to give as a minimum 10% of our income to the local church. I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say I'm pretty sure we're not all doing that. Because if we were, our income would probably triple overnight. But here's the thing. I'm not saying any of this to shame or scold any of you. As I say, I don't know who gives what. And in fact, some of you are already giving with great generosity. And, perhaps hilariously, I don't have some big project that I'm up here, you know, wheeling and dealing. We're not going to do the, the big sermon series on the building of the wall in Jerusalem so that we can, like, do the building fund or whatever, right? This is not about setting big, grandiose goals for ourselves and trying to leave our mark on the city of Portland. This is about being set free from the love of money so that we can have singleness of mind and heart. That grace that Paul is talking about that God gave to the Macedonians was a grace for them to just let go of their money. Did you catch the line at the end of our Corinthian reading? When Paul says, the goal is equality as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. You know what he's referencing there? He's referencing Israel's time in the wilderness when they were fed with manna from heaven, and they were told not to hoard it, but to gather as much as they needed. Do you remember what the people did? A bunch of them went out, and they picked up way more than they could eat, and they hoarded it. And what happened? 
their bread molded, and they had to throw it out. It did them absolutely no good. This is an embodied parable of life in God's kingdom. We have been met with such generosity as a parish. This building is an incredible gift for the life of our church that we pay hardly anything for. This is so much more important than the specifics of keeping the lights on or paying our bills. Some of you have been given stewardship over incredible resources. And if you continue to buy into the world's thinking, you will never feel secure. You will never feel that you have enough. And it will turn to mold and you will reap only sour fruit. But if you pattern your life on Christ's, you will be met with joy and freedom and singleness of heart and mind. Friends, every week in our Eucharist prayers, we offer up ourselves, our souls and bodies in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving unto God. And the reason that the collection of our offering happens just prior to this isn't simply a way for us to keep the lights on. It is the most immediate tangible expression of our self-giving in response to the profligate generosity on display for us in Christ. And so I say to you, brothers and sisters, give yourselves first to the Lord. Amen.